Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a Tuesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas podcast, where I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am joined by a first timer, Eli Letterman of Tulsa World, who covers the Oklahoma State Cowboys, who kick off in just a few weeks here their 2021 Big 12 season. Eli, good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing really well, Chase. How about yourself? Thank you for having me. Not too bad. You just got on this beat, though, right? I did just get on this beat. This is my third week, uh, third full week covering Oklahoma State. Um, so I'm, I'm fresh here, but I'm getting myself caught up and getting ready for football season. So what, did, what have you learned thus far? What, what have we learned on the beat in the three weeks? What have you learned about Oklahoma State that you did not know before you got there? Well, yeah, I was going to point out that I, I learned or learned really about the day after I accepted the job that the Big 12 was kind of disintegrating um, <laughs> as I picked here. Um, so it, that's certainly been an emphasis in, since I arrived of people wondering, you know, what the future holds for Oklahoma State um, and, and the rest of the Big 12 teams that, that are in Oklahoma and Texas. And the answer for now is, you know, who knows. Uh, but, but on the field, as far as the team goes, uh, I think, you know, what I've learned is that this team – you know, maybe uncharacteristic for most Mike Gundy teams really might make defense its strength this year. And it was sort of the case last year when it really wasn't supposed to be, but the defense stepped up then. Uh, and, and this fall, they, they returned so many guys from that defense that the secondary is filled with veterans. Uh, they have depth up front, and they have two strong linebackers to kind of hold things down in the middle. Uh, and, and so as much as, you know, Mike Gundy's teams and, and the Big 12 uh, – are often predicated on on high-flying offenses and and trust me the Cowboys will score plenty it might be a defense that's uh that's the strength this year interesting um what it what is the what is the feeling like there because you're at a school now where the Big 12's future is just very much in doubt and we don't know we don't know what's going to happen and it like after we record this call the the alliance can be revealed with the other the other conferences so we'll see it's a, a lot of moving parts right now but what is the vibe like on campus right now in Stillwater is it um and really among staff like is there a lot of uneasiness a lot of uncertainty do you have, are they thinking about the Texas Oklahoma departures have you asked them about that what does Gundy think what what have you gotten so far yeah, I mean, I mean, like you said, none of us know when this, this whole alliance is going to drop, and, and who even knows that that's, that's really going to be it. It feels, to a degree, like it might be a like a bigger headline than it is actually, you know, tangibly. Uh, but here in Stillwater, the the vibe is sort of like you know anybody who's guessing right now is, is doing just that. They're guessing. Uh, Mike Gundy has has kind of taken that stance and said he feels confident um, with sort of where particularly the football program, but Oklahoma State itself has positioned itself to, to move into the future. Um, I mean, the football program, at least based on, you know, winning success, has positioned itself well. I mean, the 13th most wins in, in Division One college football since 2010. Mm. Um, certainly, but, but you know, on-field success when it comes to realignment only does so much. They're not taking a shot at Texas, but they haven't had a gold in the last 10 years, and, and they had no problem going to the SEC. Um, and but I think that's generally generally the uh, the opinion of most people here is that Oklahoma State's in a good spot. You know, right now the, the future's so uncertain that, that anyone who's talking about it is guessing. But but Mike Boynton spoke yesterday on on John Rothstein's podcast, and he acknowledged a little bit more than than Mike Gundy has that yeah, it's something they're thinking about. It's hard not to think about. 
Uh, and I think it's going to be hard not to think about during the season, uh, whether things are this football season, the coming basketball seasons, whether there are, are developments, it's going to be pretty hard to ignore when Oklahoma comes here for Bedlam uh, at the end of November or, or when Oklahoma State travels to, to Austin to play Texas in October. I mean, that, if, if those games didn't have stakes and storylines hanging over them already, uh, they, they certainly will then. And so I, I think it's going to hang over things, but until there's developments, it kind of is the, just this this cloud that, that no one really knows what is going to happen with it. Interesting. Um what do you what do you make of Spencer Sanders thus far? What have you seen in practice? Like I am still a Spencer Sanders optimist. Do you think he is poised for a bounce back year and a big year in the Big Twelve? I think he might be. I think uh you'd probably fall into one of the two camps among the Oklahoma State fan base. Like there's certainly the people who look at twenty nineteen and the year he was the Big Twelve offensive freshman of the year and say, you know, that's Spencer Sanders and, and that's what we're gonna see this fall. And there's plenty of skeptics. Um, and people really like Shane Illingworth behind him, who looked, um, you know, pretty solid in some tough situations when he came in last year. But right now, it's Spencer Sanders' job, and I, I would say I think, you know, time will tell. But that he is maybe poised to, to look more like he did in 2019 than he did last fall. Um, the, the big talking point, uh, whether it's offensive coordinator Casey Dunn or with Mike Gundy, is that Spencer Sanders needs to to be better at protecting the football and, and limiting the turnovers. And, and so that's going to be a big determining factor for him this year. But, you know, not to get let everyone off the hook last year, but but with the Oklahoma State offense, you know, Chuba Hubbard misses time. Tylen Wallace misses time. Their their offensive line was in, in shambles for much of the year. And so that th- those those factors are going to have an impact, particularly on a, you know, a second-year quarterback. So I, I'm sort of curious to see how much we can look at last year um, as kind of a, a representative sample or, or if that was just an off year. Um, but I think we'll find out pretty quickly what what kind of improvement Spencer Sanders has made um, in those key areas. We know the talent's there, but um, he's a lot better when the ball's in his hands versus when he's uh, struggling to hold on to it. Interesting. Um, Storylines right now on the field. What are you monitoring? Position battles, what are... What are you gonna? What are you keeping an eye on uh, for the next several weeks? Yeah, the, the most probably interesting and like you know top end of the depth chart position battle was at cornerback, um, and I use was it's certainly not fully decided yet, but it appears that that Christian Holmes, uh, who's redshirt senior, former Missouri cornerback, has kind of staked his claim to the to the second cornerback spot, which is really one of the only open positions um, and open position battles on the defense. He beat out. A pair of sophomores and Jabbar Muhammad and, and Corey Black and, and those guys are going to get their shots. They have been in practice, and I would I would guess you know particularly in the early part of the season and non conference, but you'll see them. But I think it was Christian Holmes's experience and his maturity that kind of helped him win that job, and maybe that was to be expected. So he's going to probably open the season uh, lined up opposite Jarrett Bernard Converse. So that was our most interesting um, position battle. But there's still certainly some some storylines around the team. Um, they're figuring out life at left tackle. They have um, Taylor Maturko, who's a, a redshirt sophomore who, who played a bit and impressed in the spring. And then there's Caleb Etienne, who, when you look at him, looks like your prototypical left tackle. He's six foot seven, 350 pounds. He looks like the guy who should be starting there. And, and they're battling it out in camp, and we only get to see so much, but from the sound of it, it's been pretty neck and neck. Uh, so that'll be an interesting one to follow. And then on the offensive side of the ball with the skill positions, 
I think the storyline is just who's going to step up. I mean, they've got shoes to fill with, with Chuba Hubbard gone at running back and, and Tylen Wallace gone as the lead receiver. Um, and they have guys that they're confident in. Um, Tay Martin, the former Washington State uh, receiver who had a big bowl game uh, in 2020, he's looked upon as the guy to be the number one receiver and, and to be that next Oklahoma State number one wideout. Um, but time will tell with him. And then at running back, they've got really four guys who they feel like they want to distribute carries to and and the stated goal is to is to do that is it, rather than having one workhorse to distribute carries but uh, i think the goal for for the program would probably be to, to, to have one of those guys kind of rise above and, and take on that number one running back mantle so so those are some of the storylines that, that we're seeing and and they'll play out early into the season we know uh that fall camp is not is not where that road ends on on things changing with the roster and so i, I think we'll see where this team is you know, come the end of September. It's funny because they are essentially a def- defense first team now. When like we, we think about the Tylen Wallace's, the Chuba Hubbard's, the Spencer Sanders of the world, but like this defense has been just paramount to their continued success over the last couple of years. And it's also been kind of weird to just see um, them win games because of their defense. Do you think this is something that, Oklahoma State's aware of that like this is we're more of a defense first team because I, th- I forgot which big Qu- big 12 coach said this but that this was like a defense first conference now it might have been Neil Brown at West Virginia I can't remember off the top of my head who said this recently but um when you look at Oklahoma State do you think defense first do the fans think defense first and are they willing to move on from just the the just the high octane offense that uh you and i just watched for years and years when it's really like no their defense is their their bread and butter these days i mean isn't that funny the idea of oklahoma state or even the big 12 as a whole being a defense conference but i guess things shift i mean the sec doesn't quite look like uh what it used to with all the defenses mm. um you've got alabama putting up just as many points as, as oklahoma maybe um, I think with Oklahoma State, it's been a bit of a, a progression with, with Jim Knowles since he arrived. Uh, he spoke earlier in camp about how, like, his first year here, he got to, you know, implement maybe 20% of what he wanted, just in terms of, you know, being able to, it takes time to, to get your system in there. Last year was something like 75 or 65%, and now he's approaching 80. And so he's getting there. And so I do think he's been, him getting to mold this defense the way he'd like to is certainly um, been a part of that improvement, and then and then the personnel obviously helped. They, they they're bringing back, um, I, I believe it's eight starters to this year's defense, but then the other three are guys who were around and contributing last year. So there's a lot of experience and depth on the defense, and and I don't know that you know whether it's ever or, or this year it might take some time for this to if they're ever going to become a, a defer, defense first um, program. I think it, that's hard to it's really hard to reckon with Mike Gundy and defense first uh, that just those two words or, or terms don't go together. But I, I think kind of in trending with the entire conference, like they've, they've kind of woken up and it's on the defensive side of the ball. And it feels like maybe those, you know, super duper high octane, um, you know, big 12 games where it's almost like a basketball game, which is trading possessions and scoring uh, might be behind us. Those, those games we saw maybe in the early 2010s and in the middle of the decade, uh, but, I mean, as you can look up and down the results from last season. I'm sure we'll have plenty ahead this year. You'll, you'll, you'll see, still see plenty of 55 to 52 games in the Big 12 because it is still the Big 12. 
Interesting. We're going to pause real quick for a message from our sponsors. All right, we are back on the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I am joined by Eli Letterman of Tulsa World, where he covers the Oklahoma State Cowboys football team. Um, when you look at the schedule, uh, Matt Green and I on Thursday's pod uh, a few weeks back, maybe it was last week, I don't know, it all blends together, uh, when we previewed the Big 12, um, this this looked like a 7-5, and 8-4 schedule to us. When you look at this Cowboys schedule this fall, what does it look like to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what numbers I could assign to it, but um, I think they'll have an early test on the road at Boise State. Yeah. Um, first of the season, a tough place to go. Um, and, and that could maybe be a, a defining point one way or the other. If they can go there and, and take care of business, um, it would certainly be a boost for them. And, and that could maybe be about the time of year. And we know rankings only matter so much in September, but maybe that's when they can um, punch back into the top 25 uh, and right before conference play. I think the most defining stretch potentially could be that October 16th meeting with Texas followed by Iowa State uh, on the 23rd of October. And those are both road games. And if you look at at where the the Big 12 is, and I I don't know that Oklahoma State is on the level of Iowa State by any means, maybe not Texas, those are the two teams they're chasing. Um, If we all agree that Oklahoma is probably going to be there at the end of the year, and then, you know, like most years, we're searching for that other team who's going to face them and in the title game, it's Texas, it's Iowa State, and then behind them is probably Oklahoma State. And that'll probably be the part of the season that, that maybe defines things for Oklahoma State if, if they haven't defined it for themselves one way or the other before then. Um, if they can go to Texas and get a win um, and and do the same at Iowa State, obviously then I think they'd put themselves in the driver's seat. Um, but, but those are going to be two huge games. Uh, and then, of course, you've got Bedlam the Saturday after Thanksgiving, and that's uh, that one's only going to be heightened this year in Stillwater, um, of course, with with where Oklahoma is and and sort of the, the it's probably going to be a culminating factor of the the entire season's worth of, of OU Texas exit coming coming to Stillwater that weekend. Interesting. Um, which game do you have penciled in as the 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 biggest tell about which way Oklahoma State season is going to go? Is it Boise? I don't know about Boise. I think, I mean, obviously, whatever that that would put into potential conference contention hopes. Um, I mean, I obviously wouldn't impact the conference schedule, but I, I view the, the the Texas and Iowa State games as, as probably the most defining. Uh, they they might take themselves out of contention before then, but it'll be in those two weeks that that Oklahoma State probably makes or breaks. Um, you know, like I said, if they manage to go two and zero in in probably their two toughest road games this season looks very different than uh, than if they split them or, or drop them both. And, and obviously it's contingent on what they do uh, in the two conference games with Kansas State and Baylor before that. But if they could make it through Texas and Iowa State still in contention, and then you get Kansas the next weekend at home, that could send them into November in a, in a pretty good spot. So I think that's the stretch um, that, that is really going to be determining in, in what this team can be. All right. What can we uh, do to check out your work? at Tulsa World and anywhere else this week. Yeah, well, um, certainly feel free to follow on Twitter at by Eli Letterman. Um, and always the Tulsa World, subscribe, read, send stuff around, retweet, all that stuff um, we love. I'll have um, later this week a feature on Malcolm Rodriguez, who's the kind of senior leading uh, 
linebacker on the Oklahoma State defense. And then next week, game week, uh, I'll have something on Spencer Sanders and, and sort of the work he has done this offseason to to make this year look more like 2019 than 2020. So uh, stay tuned and follow along. And uh, Chase, glad we could talk, and I'm happy to come on anytime. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, good luck this season. Thank you so much for the time. I greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, the Tuesday night edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast rolls along where I'm now joined by NBCS Washington's Pete Haley. Pete, good evening, sir. How are you? Doing well, man. Thank you for uh, making time for me. It's always an honor to join other people's podcasts. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, what uh, what is the current what is the current state or current feeling in Washington right now? I'd say it's a feeling of optimism for sure. Um, a lot of angst, ready to get to the season and see how they built off or how they build off of what happened in 2020. Um, it, this is a town that is always fired up for some burgundy and gold football, but this year it feels like that's especially the case with uh, fans returning to the stadium, a playoff berth in the rearview mirror, uh, a lot of new additions on offense and defense, and a highly exciting quarterback to watch. So uh, people are geared up, and September 12th can't come around soon enough. Um, who in the preseason thus far, who have you seen that has really popped? Is it is it Jarrett Patterson? Is he the number one guy for you? Who who did you have through through two games that have popped and stood out to you? Jarrett Patterson is definitely at the top of the list. I mean, a five eight generously listed running back who was undrafted, uh, the only undrafted guy to be in training camp for this team, and just seeing what he's done. Uh, you know, first time he kind of showed out against New England, I was like, all right, this is a cute preseason story. One of those things that will get us through August, but then he'll be relegated to the practice squad and we may not ever hear from him again. But it feels like backing that performance up by going off against Cincinnati and even logging a impressive kick return sort of announced his arrival as like a, you know, a legit part of this roster. I think he's going to make the team without a doubt. And I don't know how much he'll play in the regular season, but um, he's definitely got some talent, and Ron Rivera has been very glowing in his praise. So that guy's at the top of the list. And aside from that, I've been pleased with Sam Cosme at right tackle. Here was a guy who had a lot of issues early on, and those were probably predictable, and we shouldn't have been as harsh on him in hindsight as maybe I was. Uh, he's playing against Chase and Montez Sweat. He was exposed early on, but who wouldn't be exposed by those two defensive ends? And as camps progressed, he's gotten a lot more sound, a lot more – uh, consistent, and I think in the first two preseason games he's shown out pretty well. I wouldn't say he's necessarily gotten an A and is on his way to becoming a pro bowler in his first year or anything, but he's done a lot to kind of quell my concerns. So those two rookies on offense have definitely caught my eye, and I think uh, you know one will be a starter and one could be a sneaky good role player for this team. What is the what is the um, Ryan Fitzpatrick to DME Brown? situation look like are they gonna is he gonna be a target heavy guy like a lot of a lot of smart draft people loved this pick and loved him coming into the draft and um he's obviously getting some time here with this revamped washington receiver room because it was really just terry mclaurin and uh and really not a whole lot else um these last two years but now mclaurin has some help and adam humphreys being a cap couch in tennessee so he's over there you get curtis samuel from carolina suddenly the room it's not stacked but there's a lot more pieces 
for Fitzpatrick to to throw around to is Brown somebody you think even as a rookie is going to be someone who gets a lot of targets from Fitzpatrick this season yeah the, the room is definitely better last year it was Terry McLaurin and the undrafted which kind of sounds like a, a bad like band that plays in <laughs> of local bars but that's really what it was and this year there are a lot more weapons and I think as long as Curtis Samuel comes back, which we've been waiting for for days and days and weeks and weeks, but it hasn't happened yet, but I think he will be eventually back in the lineup. That'll eat into Brown's targets for sure because, you know, they paid him $40 million and he'll be a starter. So whatever Brown's stock we're seeing right now will probably take a bit of a hit just because the snaps will go down. But still, um, I came into the training camp thinking he might be a 25-catch a guy, has a, has a reception or two every game and maybe a couple deep balls here or there, but He's shown me to be more of a complete receiver. I've been impressed with him on slants and on crosses and on comebacks in addition to his work on just those straight go routes that he made his name off of in Carolina. So I do think Fitzpatrick is developing a nice bond with him. Their back shoulder catch uh, against the Bengals I think was a really impressive throw, one that you know is, is rare at this point of camp, especially for a guy like Fitzpatrick who's a veteran hooking up with a rookie like that. Like You just don't see that too often. So I think there's growing trust between Fitzpatrick and De'Ami Brown and I think these coaches are pleasantly surprised with what he's done so far and I think for sure he's going to be a focal point of this offense behind McLaurin, Thomas, Samuel. I think he can get 45-50 catches so I basically kind of doubled my expectations for him and uh, in terms of his long-term production I think he'll be a really nice piece here uh, for the next four or five years on his rookie deal. As a diehard Atlanta Falcons supporter pete um it it gives me a lot of pause to see west Schweitzer sitting there at the <laughs> left guard spot i i can go ahead and tell you that's not going to go well that is and then you look right behind him eric flowers i i am very concerned about the left side of this offensive line the blind side for ryan fitzpatrick are you the are you similarly concerned yeah i probably am i think the interior is Dicey. Um, you know, Chase Roulier is a pretty steady guy there in the middle. He started a ton of games for this team as a center. He's been a really good six-round pick since uh, he entered the league. But Schweitzer and Flowers, I've expected one of them to take control of that starting job, and I'm not sure either one has. It might be the guy who does the least to lose it as opposed to the guy that's who does the most to win it. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what you want to hear along the interior. Like <laughs> some really good defenses here. It's just like, whoever falls backward into the job, mm-hmm. uh, and you know who knows? Maybe I mean that literally, but um, I I think they're just hoping that between those two, if they have to flip flop, whatever, they can get some decent production. I don't think they're expecting too much more than that, and hopefully you can hide them in between Roulier and Charles Leno. But certainly Schweitzer and Flowers haven't been as strong as I don't think this staff would like. Um, and Sheriff at right guard is an all-pro. Cosme you've already touched on, touched on. And Charles Leno, nothing special, but a guy who will be there every week, kind of like the left side Morgan Moses. He's, he's a good tackle, not a great one, but you can certainly move the ball with him. So, you know, I hear Jan Schweitzer. I think he did more in his first year with Washington than what many projected, but I'm not sure I've seen that step from him or enough from Flowers to make me feel like left guard is a is – a, uh, a sound spot so i think fitzpatrick you might see him rolling out right a few times this year as he's trying to escape some interior pressure from that position what makes deron Payne, chase young jonathan allen montez sweat so dominant on the defensive line what what do you see where you're just like i don't know how 
opposing offensive lines are supposed to deal with this? Like, what do what do they do just exceptionally well as a unit? I think it starts a lot with their personalities. I mean, all of those guys, you add in Matt Ioannidis, um, they're just so serious. I mean, you get them at a podium, you get them on the side, try to talk to them, and they're polite. They're nice. They'll, they'll engage with you, but they don't really like to laugh that much. They are very serious, and sometimes I like to throw some lighter questions at players, and oftentimes those players will respond with some light answers, but it's very hard to break through with those guys. Like, I'll, I'll ask them kind of a joking question, and they'll give me a very serious answer, and I'll kind of be like, ha yeah, okay, let's move on to something else. Like, I think they all really mesh well in terms of their mentality. They're no-nonsense, let's go eat up quarterbacks, and then on Monday we're going to study to get ready to eat up the next quarterback. And then it certainly doesn't help when you have Montez Sweat, a guy with arms, that are basically touching his kneecaps when he's standing up straight and Chase Young with all those physical gifts. So between the preparation, how much they push each other, I think they all um, you know, contribute in a way that makes the other want to do more. They feed off each other. The interior pressure forces quarterbacks out to the edge and then Sweat and Young feast. And then the other way around, when those guys are screaming off the edge, the quarterback has to step up and that's when they step right into John Payne or Matt Ionis' arm. So um, it's, it's really a, a nice harmony both physically and mentally, and I think um, they're going to absolutely live up to the hype this year. I know they're playing really good quarterbacks this year, and I know a lot of quarterbacks can get rid of the ball quickly to sort of counteract such a deep pass rush, but I still think that front four, as they rotate guys in and out, including Tim Settle, don't forget him, will be just as advertised, if not better. Interesting. Um, a lot of, lot of hype for Landon Collins from camp. Whenever I read my, like, I have this index of all of my different blogs and everything and papers and um, sites and the NBC sports stuff is, is great across the board, like Tom Curran in, um, in New England and you guys in D.C. Like, there's just a lot of great stuff out there. So, I, like, I organize all of it and I read through it. But one of the things that seems to be a prominent theme of this camp is Landon Collins is both healthy and good and being used correctly. Would you would you agree with that sentiment? And have you seen something different with Collins? He just looks a little faster, a little more sharp, a little more sudden than I've seen him in the past couple of years. And I think he's definitely not lived up to that giant contract he signs. But I do think right before he tore his Achilles last year, it was starting to click a little bit for him in Jack Del Rio's defense. He respects Jack Del Rio a lot, and I think they were finally figuring out how to use Landon and a bad injury happened at a bad time. Mm-hmm. Um, credit to him. He's rehabbed the hell out of it, and he's somehow come back, in his words, feeling better than ever. He's lost a little bit of weight, which I think is the right call and will hopefully make him a little more fluid in his movements. So I have seen everything you've been reading. I think that play he made in that preseason game against Cincinnati was one tackle and an exhibition matchup, but he flew off the screen right into Thaddeus Moss's thighs. I mean, it was so fast and I was like that can't be Landon that's not the Landon I've seen here so um, it's going to take him a a really big 2021 to start winning back some of these fans because he has been labeled a bust here and I don't know if he's been a bust but he certainly hasn't uh, delivered but at the same time I think between his health his lighter weight and understanding what Jack Dario wants from him and understanding you know Jack Dario understanding what he has Landon Collins I think it makes for a very solid potential for a bounce back and between him and Cam Curl and a couple of these safeties, I think the secondary is going to be better than a lot of people think, and their jobs will be easier if that front four eats. So everybody kind of feeds off each other, not just up front, but all throughout the defense. And Landon, uh, if he's the Landon we've seen in camp, 
he's got to be a better tackler than what he's shown. But if he's the Landon we've seen in camp plus a little bit better tackling, then this defense's potential definitely goes up a notch because he can be a really, really good safety in the NFL. Jameen Davis, is he a future leader? What have you seen from him as a rookie middle linebacker in this group? Um, there was mixed reactions on that selection for for Washington. What do you make of his his summer thus far, and uh, what kind of player he'll be this fall? I think he's still a little bit unsure of himself. And I watched back that Bengals game and that Patriots game, and I don't necessarily watch them back to you know figure out why the cover four should have been a cover three and how this pass worked out. I just kind of watched to see. You know, watch a play three or four times over just to see who's doing what, who seems to be in the right spot, who's you know getting cut off by a block here or there, why a play works, et cetera. So in watching Jamin Davis, there's just a lot of yeah, an extra step here or there where there's a run play, and you see Cole Holcomb and John Bosick immediately recognize it, and they shoot towards the running back. And then you look at Davis, and he's still moving laterally, almost like he's still trying to diagnose it. And that's been backed up by some comments from Ron Rivera, and Jamin hasn't been in the nickel as much, which you would sort of think a guy with that speed would be an automatic fit in a nickel defense. So while I'm still very bullish on Jamin as a pro 10 years down the line, having a really good NFL career, I'm just not sure he's going to be as productive right away as many think. And I know it was kind of a sneaky pick for defensive rookie of the year because you look at the defense he's on and the tools he has. I'm just not there right now. And I was kind of early on just in theory like yeah of course all that makes sense but between his lack of experience in college and just maybe a bit more of a learning curve in the nfl i think it could be a month or two before we start seeing uh number 52 really influencing games i mean he'll still be a, a threat in pass coverage maybe uh notch an interception or two but overall i think it might just be this is sort of a year where he has to incubate or he has to learn he'll flash but maybe not consistently and then years two, three, and four is when he's really going to pick it up. But he's got a really good attitude. He's incredibly mature. He's definitely a Ron Rivera player. All he wants to do is play fast and get to the quarterback and get to running backs and do his job. Like I love everything about him, but for Jamin Davis, the, the full Jamin Davis, I think, is going to come next year and the year after that. And there's a good tracker now of uh, drafting Kentucky defensive front seven guys. Uh, seems like a good a good strategy. And he's yeah. from Long County, Georgia, where you can't go wrong down there in Hinesville. Uh, I, I like that. Ludo, Ludowiki, Georgia. Um, the population is 1,700 people as of, as of right now. That's a small amount of people. I'm, yeah. I'm not a geography genius, but that sounds like a very small area. Well, I'm as a Georgia uh, native um, and now in Tennessee, like the South and the, the small towns in the South is one of my favorite things. It's, it's, a, it's a specialty of <laughs> mine. Um, who, who do you enjoy? Who, or I shouldn't say this. You probably, I don't want to get you in trouble. Who is the funniest player in camp this fall? Who have you noticed that players latch on to? Like, how about this? If who you've seen players latch on to and think is funny or more like just they're drawn to or that you've enjoyed talking to the most? In terms of the guy who players are drawn to, it's J.D. McKissick, the uh, hmm. third-down running back. He had 80 catches last year. He's very energetic, and his role will probably be a little bit decreased this year as they get Antonio Gibson more involved. But J.D. is always, and I mean always, in the middle of a scrum with defensive players. He's always on the defensive sideline when every other player in a white jersey is on the offensive sideline. He's shadow boxing Chase Young. <laughs> his sweat is like pushing down i mean it's 
wild. This guy just figures out a way to talk constantly and get under everybody's skin. So I think it's all in good fun, but I do feel like every once in a while defensive end is like, I would love to just pick this guy up and smash him into the ground because he's annoying me with his jukes and his good hands and his speed. And he's just always without, he's always a little bit out of grasp. So JD McKissick, it's really fun watching him interact with defenders. And in terms of guys who I like talking to, I mean, I don't know. It's funny. I don't know how many punters get this much love, but Tressway in Washington is kind of like a cult hero amongst fans and the media loves him too. He's incredibly funny. He is always down to tell a story. He's always got a great answer to whatever question you lob at him. So Tressway, he stepped behind the podium maybe seven, ten days ago, talked for 20 minutes, and I felt like when he's done, we all sort of give him a standing ovation. He's kind of like a stand-up comedian on one <laughs> answer, but then gives you really good intel on why the kicking operation isn't as smooth as it normally is. And then he talks about what kind of different kick variations he's working on and compares it to golf. Like he's smart, he's witty, and he's very uh, friendly. So Tressway is my guy, but in terms of the guy who I've seen players interact with a ton, J.D. McKissick is just, he's something out there for sure. Is uh, Way the one that Stephen A. Smith thought was starting at quarterback? Yes. Yeah, that was, I remember I blogged that. That was probably two or three years ago, and I kind of forget the specifics now, but yeah. And uh, we talked to Tress about it. He had an amazing answer. So uh, that was a whiff by Stephen A. Tressway is a really good left-footed punter, and he threw a couple passes. He's been used on a couple fakes, and I think his pass rating is over 100 on Pro Football Reference. And I think Tress's line, and you know this might be a little bit inaccurate. I haven't checked anymore, but I think his line is I have a better pass rating than Tom Brady. Um, but yes, yeah, sorry, Stephen A. He's he's a specialist, not a QB. Okay, as we wrap up here, two final questions for you. One, true or false? Ryan Fitzpatrick is the week 17, or I guess week 18 starter now for the Washington football team. And two, this team repeats as NFC East champions. One, I would like to answer with a joke and say no, because they're going to be resting their starters, but Mm. um, that's probably a little bit too far. I made that joke on our podcast. Um, I said it with a laugh, and maybe 10% of me was serious, but for the Mm. most part it was a bit. But I do think Fitz will be the starter. I think he's going to start almost all of the year, if not the entire year. There might be a game or two, you know, where he blows up and Ron wants to insert Taylor Heineke just because he seems like a guy who can give you a good spark for two or three quarters. But in terms of running this offense, having the highest ceiling, being the most durable, all those things, I think Fitzpatrick has shown that he's a class ahead of Heineke. So I do believe he'll be the starter in week 18. And I also think this team's going to repeat. There hasn't been an NFC East repeat champ since 04, but I do think this roster is deep enough to do it. They have that defense we've talked so much about. They have some up-and-coming rookies. We haven't mentioned Benjamin St. Juice, who I think gives this defense a little more flexibility as a bigger corner, a more physical guy. Hopefully William Jackson can transition from Cincy into Washington's scheme and continue being the shutdown corner he was in the AFC North. Um, The offense has way more playmakers. This team made the playoffs last year with three pretty horrific quarterbacks and Terry McLaurin and as I said a bunch of undrafted guys so overall I think it's a lot deeper of a team I think everybody knows what Ron Rivera wants to do I think Ron Rivera is going to be healthier which is something that isn't necessarily tangible but I do think will have an impact on how he coaches this team and how he gets them ready and I'm not too concerned with the division outside of Dallas so um, I like Washington's offense defense um, and I do like just where everybody's head is at I think they're focused and very intent on proving that last year wasn't a fluke. So they will be repeat NFC's champs and hosting yet another playoff game 
at the illustrious FedEx Field. There you go. There you go. Off the record, but not off the record because we're recording a, a podcast at this moment. Uh, what is the new name? I think it's going to be DC-centric, whether that's commanders, monuments, veterans, mm. something like that. I don't buy into the Red Wolves. I love that name. I actually love Wolves more than Red Wolves. Just Red Wolves feels like we're just tacking red onto something for keeping traditional. Which is I okay. Think I'm Wolves. okay with that. Yeah, but that's fine. The answer is Red Tails, by the way. The answer is Red Tails, and it didn't make the cut. I just don't know if they want to go into business with naming their team after a group of people again. That's it true. too risky. Yeah. So I think they're going to stay away from that. Um, so Wolves would have an amazing logo. You could have a tremendous atmosphere, great jerseys, all that stuff. But this uh, group of decision makers seems really hell-bent on having it tie into something with the DMV area, D.C., Maryland, Virginia. And we don't really have any wolves here. Last time I checked, I haven't seen a wolf walking around uh, Capitol Hill or in Ashburn, Virginia. So I think it's going to be something that embodies kind of the capital region and uh, this area. This is something that this fan base can latch on to. So I'll probably, if I had to choose one right now, I would say the Commanders, but anything in that vein I think is the right bet. So Commanders is your, your leader in the clubhouse, if you had to bet right now. Yes. I don't think they stay with football team. I don't think they transition to football club. They've put in so much work. They've made so many webisodes of their TV series. They've done all these things. They've brought in consulting companies and done surveys. And I think it would be very uh, – it would anger a lot of people if they just said, all right, after all this work, after all this teasing, after all this dragging you through this and that, we're going to stick with what we already were. I do think they change, and I think they become the commanders. Interesting. I don't like it. I don't like it. It's not for me. I'm no, going to have to reject it. A, and as the sports yeah. czar, Pete, you know, um, with the, the kind of sway this podcast has, I'm going to have to reject uh, <laughs> reject this choice and uh, go with the Red Wolves. The Red Wolves is better. All right. All right. Well, I guess I'll just start referring to them as Red Wolves. Then I'm, you don't shoot the messenger. I'm just giving a prediction. Yeah. And it was it, you smited it down, and that's mm-hmm. fine. As the sports are, as you called yourself, that that's well within your right. Some call me sports renaissance man. Some call me sports star. You know, it. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to Jason about it. Jason, and he loves it when I call him Jason, the Mister Jason, right? Like we, of we, course, of yeah. course. <laughs> I'll, J-Dub, I'll, as you as you so often refer to him. Mm-hmm. I'll shoot him a text boy. and be like, "Commanders is not going to work." So if that's what uh, we're thinking there, we're we're going to have to we're going to have to redo <laughs> that one. We're going to have to redo it. And he played at Northwestern, if I recall. So he could go wild. Like he's yeah. familiar with the Wildcats. So Red Wolves, Wildcats. Sure. There, there's a history there. Yeah, I just want them to choose something so I can you know have a shorter name in headlines and have mm. more characters and tweets. It's been maddening. I also like calling it. You know, I want to call Chase Young a blank, a commander, a a wolf i don't want to call him a football team player so Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stupid little journalism things i care about that will be made a lot easier if they settle on an actual mascot slash teammate but we're sure it will be next year like we'll be calling them something this time next year yeah the phrase they use is early 2022 i would imagine the season ends january february they take a break and maybe in between that uh super bowl and free agency or in between free agency and the draft they have it you know they can that can be a downtime where they dominate the news cycle they don't just spit it out like the indians did to become the guardians i think they make a huge reveal and dominate that week and uh it'll be early 2022 we'll finally get the long-awaited answer 
All right. Well, Pete, keep up the great work. How do the good folks keep up with your work at NBC? Very simple. You can start on Twitter, Pete Haley, H-A-I-L-E-Y, NBCS. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, TikTok, every other platform as well. I'm even on Cameo. If you want a Cameo from a random guy for nine bucks, I can read about, uh, you know, I can make fun of your friend's fantasy lineups. I can wish your, your niece a happy birthday. So find me on Cameo. I'm all over the place. So thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me plug all that stuff. And I'm sure I will get like two extra follows, but I'll really appreciate it. Anything less than three would be a, a significant blow to my ego, I think. Pete. If I get less than three, I'm never coming back on here again. So you better, if, if you need to, make a couple burner accounts and, and just get me over three, at least. I got you. I got you. Don't look, if you see, definitely not Chase Thomas um, at you on Twitter. <laughs> it's it Just don't don't be alarmed. It's a real person. It's not a bot. It's not me. It's, it's a real person. There's, there's a lot of not real Chase Thomases out there. If you go to the Yellow Pages, there's a lot out there. Um, that's how popular this podcast has been over the last couple of years. People are naming their kids that. It's it's it, it's it's simple. It's easy. Um, Pete, keep up the great work. Enjoy this season as we get closer and closer back to normal. Enjoy Ryan Fitzpatrick freelancing in week two. Um, it's gonna be a fun year, and I'm excited to see what happens in Washington and that dumpster fire that is the NFC East. So they are the most <laughs> competent team. Somehow they've become the most competent and reliable of the big four now and uh it's gonna be interesting to see so pete thank you i will check back in with you with you again soon awesome thanks for having me and yeah washington being the most competent that's the sure sign ever that the world was about that <laughs> all right hello and welcome back to the Tuesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I am now joined by a first-timer, Corbin Ford. Corbin, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing good, Chase. Happy to be on. Excited. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for being here, man. Um, there's not a lot of NBA stuff going on at the moment. And when you listen to, um, like, I, on my walk yesterday, I was listening to the Athletic NBA show spend at least 20 minutes on LeBron being upset about his, uh, like, his, what was, I don't even remember now, like, just with the, the news cycle, what was he upset about? Like, where he, he wasn't rated by anyone who was polled in this arbitrary poll, like, as the best player in basketball anymore? It, and, yeah, exactly. Hashtag Wash King. You know, yeah. it's a semi-annual tradition at this point. I, it, that's where we're at, though, is, like, that's a, that's a big content thing. And it's interesting because... A, I understand if you're a LeBron, you're like, hey, this is something that's easy for me to get motivated. Like people think after getting bounced in the first round with an injury riddled season for AD that like I, I'm done and I can't be the best player on a contender anymore. That sort of thing. Like I understand from the athlete's perspective to find um, to find just uh, whatever you can to to motivate yourself. And this is something that's easy. And he is someone that wants to do that. But also like they're not wrong. Like. It is one of those things where I I don't really think it was that much of a hot take to just not place LeBron as the best player in basketball in 2021, especially 2022, based on what we've seen this last year, based on his just workload, based on just the uncharted territory we are with his age and what he is doing at this point in his career. Like, did you raise any eyebrows at that? Did you think it was fair? What did you make of that? I, I did and I didn't. I did. 
did because I mean it's not LeBron had a bad showing this I mean I, okay he had a bad for himself showing in the mm-hmm. first round of last year's playoffs but one could clearly tell it didn't take that long to look and see there was an explosion there he was definitely either pacing himself or playing hampered and I think we all sort of agree that it was a more of the latter that came into effect there so on the one hand you're like okay if you look at what he was, the, the level he was playing before he got injured then you still looking at someone who's you know at worst top three at least at the way he was playing at the level he was playing. I think the combination of him not being, you know, fully 100%, as well as Kevin Durant, Janssen Kumpo, and others putting on just transcendent playoff performances kind of skewed in a way where we're like, okay, you know, those guys are not just younger, but were more dominant. It's not like LeBron didn't help fanning the flames when he said he might not ever be 100% from that ankle injury, which turned out to be maybe nothing, maybe something, but it was just a whole other element of distraction. Uh, and also, I mean, I get it. Like, people have been counting LeBron. He's 35. He's 36 going on 37 now. So with those combination of factors, you know, one could lead yourself to believe, okay, no, I wouldn't put him as the best player in the NBA. However, I am sort of the opinion that I also maybe don't agree. I think he still can be uh, at a high level for a certain period of time, but maybe long term, maybe not. And that's no fault of his own. That's just father time, you know, making this a steady erosion there. Yeah, I... I don't know, um, but they were also talking about and this was interesting of like the value and whether or not Anthony Davis was more valuable at this point in his career than LeBron, and I don't agree with that. Like I, I th- yeah, um, I love Anthony Davis, great player. He is the reason that they they won the title in the bubble, like what he did, and just those two together. And I mean, they also um, the Lakers had the best defense in basketball last year. I am I'm so interested in Los Angeles this year. Like they I I. I'm excited to to see how this all works. I'm excited to see um, if this veteran heavy group works. Like they changed out everybody. Like there are so many different pieces on this roster that I am so intrigued to see how this all works because the defense can't be any better than it was last year. But they're baking on the offense with the additions of Wayne Ellington and the increased role for Taylor Horton Tucker. Um, they're just betting on like mellow for 12 minutes a night, like Westbrook taking some of the playmaking duties off LeBron. Um, they're betting on this offense getting a lot better with the veterans and with the shooting and also the defense staying as elite as it was last year. Do you, do you think both of those things will happen or are you, are you less high in Los Angeles? What, what is your feeling right now? I'm high on Los Angeles from an offensive standpoint. I think that now with Westbrook, you have another, I want to say, well, star-level creator that can keep offenses afloat when LeBron's not playing. We've seen over the last couple of years LeBron's been in L.A., there's a noticeable drop-off in play. I mean, it's been for most of his career, but in terms of anything happening, even with Anthony Davis as kind of the hub of the offense, they can't find the ball to him. He's not anywhere near the level of creator that LeBron is and often stagnates until LeBron gets back. So I think with Russell Westbrook, you have someone who, I mean, we saw what he did with the Washington Withers last year. We've seen the way he's played, you know, with the Rockets and all his crew with the Thunder. He's someone that, you know, with his warts and, you know, the ones that he have are significant, he can still create offense at a, at a fairly uh, decent level. And so I'm a lot more high on that. I think you also bring in guys who, you know, if the numbers uh, translate from last season and shoot the ball more effectively than the shooters that the Lakers had the year before, and you have some young, intriguing talent in both Kendrick Nunn and Malik Monk uh, that not only bring some significant upside, just given their ages, but also are coming off a pretty strong season themselves. So I look at that, and I could see the offense taking a market step in the right direction, uh, considering that it was really more middle of the pack, which is surprising when you look at LeBron and AD as kind of the head of that snake there. On the defensive end, though, no. I think that 
you know, the Lakers are, are going to be a little more down than they were. You know, maybe middle of the pack is optimistic, but you look at the personnel, I, I just don't see it. Yes, you may have more size than you did in the past, and that might be nice, but at the same time, you know, Trevor Rizzo at 36, um, you look at guys like Ken Bazemore, who will still, while solid, is undersized. Uh, a lot of the talent that they have are not only not defensive-minded, but the ones that are are kind of long in the tooth of positions that are going to be, you know, needed to cover. Like, if you're looking at um, a KD, you're looking at a Paul George in, in, in prior years, um, not this one, of course, you're probably looking at a Kawhi. Who's your main guy? You're trotting out a less-than-ideal stopper for either of them. Um, while they may have more size than years past, I think everyone either is on the downside of their athletic uh, career um, at this point, especially on the defensive end, or if you're looking at Monk and Nunn, have not really um, earned reputations as defenders. So I think you have to look at some regression there. And I look at Russell Westbrook as more of the same. He has some intriguing talents that he just doesn't utilize on the defensive side. But with him being 32 going on 33, I, I doubt that it wakes up that much that we're like, okay, you know what? Here's a, I'm exaggerating here, but like an all defender. Yeah, and I noticed you didn't mention Malik Monk there at all. Uh, oh, yeah, Malik Monk would be in... <laughs> the wild Monk, card. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, no, I love him. I love him on the offensive side. I think he's going to be a great impact player for LA. But defensively, I, I don't I don't really have any high hopes. Anything I think he brings on that, it'll be nice, right? I just... Wayne Ellington is a start. Like, not having Danny Green there is obvious, and that's been a problem. I think that they missed him a lot last year, but... yeah. I I don't know. I this backcourt really scares me. And obviously LeBron can can dominate the backcourt a lot if he wants to. Um but like like you said, Kendrick Nunn, um he's fine. We'll see how he integrates with this group. But Westbrook, he's a year older. We talk about just age and father time. I it there were some rough stretches, like the way he started off last year and obviously finishing really strong, but when I'm looking at getting this offense better and this defense keeping it elite. Russell Westbrook is not not what comes to mind. So I wish like these are those kind of things where like I would love to get 15 minutes with LeBron off the record and be like, okay, make this make sense to me. Make this make sense with Russell Westbrook in a seven game series against the Clippers, the Nuggets, the the Suns. Explain to me how this half court offense won't won't just die with you, AD. Um, Wayne Ellington, whoever is like Trevor Ariza, and then maybe even Marcus All or Dwight Howard in stretches. Like if AD doesn't want to close at the five, and if he does close at the four, then who's that other wing? Is it Wesley Matthews? Is it Trevor Ariza? Is it Melo? Is it Bazemore? I think this is still a limited team depth wise, and they're really betting a lot on the health of AD, LeBron, and Westbrook, and. A lot of veterans that I just, I don't really believe in. I am far less a believer in Los Angeles than I think my, our, our, I should say our peers are. Wow. I mean, I, yeah, I get you. I think I'm, I'm a little more optimistic on the offensive end for Westbrook. I think, look at it. If, you, if you're L.A., I doubt that you're maximizing Westbrook's strengths or LeBron's by playing them both together any more than the first couple of minutes of the first quarter, right? So you want to have Westbrook really kind of take the head of the offense when LeBron is resting to maximize having that, you know, star level creation ability. With Westbrook right now, I mean, last year, aside from Bradley Beal, you had some 
disjointed, funky rosters up in Washington. You know, you didn't really have a small forward for most of the year. You had a rotating core of bigs um, that kind of did their job okay. You know, toward the playoffs, you were running three-point guard lineups with two guys who weren't really great shooters, Westbrook and, um, I mean, Raul Neto was your best shooter. Usually it was um, um, an Ish Smith that was alongside him, alongside Bradley Beal, who was also hampered down the stretch. So I think with the model of, of team that you have around Westbrook now, you're going to have shooters, right? that can benefit from his driving kick game. You're going to have a rim-rolling big. More than likely, Dwight Howard's going to be matched up a lot with Westbrook to put more pressure at the rim, and we know that Westbrook loves to find his bigs, you know, whether it's drop-off passes or lobs. I think you can kind of cobble together a, a, an above-average offense for a, a bit of time that LeBron's now on the bench. And, of course, I, I didn't even mention the LeBron, um, not LeBron, the Westbrook in AD minutes as well. Like, there's something there, I think, where you have some, you know, at least adequate shooting a decent big, whether that is the the vertical um, rim, the offensive verticality of Dwight Howard, or you're having more of a passing spacier attack from Marcus Saul, and I think that that will be enough to kind of keep them afloat. I agree with you in terms of not being like super great, like absolutely not. But I mean, you went from Dennis Schroeder, who people were a lot more optimistic on, to a point guard who was clearly better than Dennis Schroeder, um, even with his flaws that he has, and I think you have a team in Los Angeles that will maximize Westbrook's strengths in a way that haven't really been seen since the last half of that 2020 season with the Houston Rockets. Yeah, we'll we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Um, De'Aaron Fox, someone who you could see getting frustrated about Sacramento still not finding their way back into the playoffs and ending that streak. They drafted another guard in Davion Mitchell, who showed out in Summer League. He's going to be a good player this group on the older side you have ty Halliburton now you still have buddy healed in this roster uh monty mcnair has a lot of work to do it still seems like still a really weird roster and also a sneaky sneaky old roster when you look at the rest of the west i think the kings are a lot older than people think but he is uh reportedly content in sacramento do you do you buy it and also do you think these three guard closing lineups or i mean not even just closing that heavy minute lineups they're gonna have to do with fox Halliburton, healed, or um, insert it, basically a combination between healed and uh, Mitchell. Like, do you believe that, that will work and that will push them into the playing game type uh, type atmosphere for them? It's hard to say, but I lean no. Um, I I think that we've seen the three. I mean, three point guard model is something that is probably being brought up more popularity with you know the Oklahoma City Thunder of of what two, a year or so back with shooter. Um, Chris Paul and, and SGA, but we've seen the three-point guard lineup for years, you know, back in the 80s and 90s with the Detroit Pistons, um, you know, with Dumars, Isaiah Thomas, and Vinnie Johnson, you know, they had a little bit of that um, with the Mavericks in the early 90s. Like, we've seen the three-point guard lineup work in moments, um, depending on how they're staggered and who is surrounding them. And I think when you look at Oklahoma City, um, if you're comparing that, that, that three-point guard lineup, that big three, if you will, in this case, with these guys um, in Sacramento, I think the difference is you had more adequate defense I liked, and you also had guys who could stand up more reasonably well you know, with one of them playing the three. I mean, Chris Paul, even while at the time being 34, was still stout defensively. If you were trying to post up Chris Paul, more than likely you were not running the offense that you really wanted to run at the onset. Um, and not all the time was it a success for your team either because, you know, with his veteran savvy and the way he is able to be held up stout defensively, it was it was a pretty a reasonable deterrent. If you look at Sacramento, I mean, 
you look at the physical profiles of a De'Aaron Fox and Tyrese Halliburton, uh, as long as a Davion Mitchell, I mean, Davion's the shortest of the bunch at 6'2", De'Aaron's 6'3", and then Halliburton's 6'5", but Halliburton's probably the thinnest in frame of those three. So you really don't want him probably guarding your threes, um, regardless of the matchup in that case. I mean, moments, I'm sure, or spot-up threes, of course, but that's probably not a deal for you. So you're looking at Mitchell and Fox, and even though Mitchell is the smallest he is kind of the most stout defensively and he'll at least compete however i don't look at him like i look at chris paul where you go okay you know what mitchell will definitely um he's gonna hold his own but would be a reasonable like even semi stopper on that end i think if you have significant size that six seven on six two is six seven on six two for certain players as hard as they fight so i think when you look at that you're as much as it's about the big three for those, for the Kings, is really about what you have around them. So you're looking at, you know, uh, Harrison Barnes and a Harkless front court, which is interesting. You're looking at Marvin Bagley and what happens there. Um, you're looking at your big situation between the returning Rashawn Holmes, Tristan Thompson, and, and Alex Len as well. It's kind of the tertiary pieces that's going to determine the Kings, you know, long-term performance this upcoming season. And honestly, I'm not too optimistic on it. Um, I think they're pretty thin at the three, like just from a legit three point of view. Uh, I think Harrison Barnes at this stage is more of a four. And if that's the case, join the club because you already have Thompson there. You'd have Matt Bagley there. Um, Damian Jones is a, is a five, but he's listed as a four as well. You have a lot of guys who skewed to the five and the four. You obviously have a lot of point guards. You have Buddy Hill just hanging around. He's more than likely going to be your three just from size and profile. And are we forgetting that this is one of the worst teams defensively last season, which they didn't really make any significant upgrades in that direction. Yeah, I guess if you're a big Terrence Davis guy. Um, and uh, Mo Harkless yeah, I, yeah. is a plus defender, but um, yeah, I don't know. They paid Rashawn Holmes, who's really good. I've always been a big Rashawn Holmes guy. I don't believe Thompson's going to be on the Sacramento loss roster long term. Yeah. I'm still surprised he's actually still there. Um, I don't know. This is a, just a really, really thin, thin group, and the Bagley whiff really, really hurts them because if you look at everybody else in that draft, like them ending up with Bagley has changed changed everything like it's changed their trajectory it's changed where where they sit in the west and what they would be right now and what they would be in the next five to ten years they could have gone trey they could have gone luca like they're it, it, it's rough um it, it's rough right now for for sacramento but i also just think that like that's why the draft is such a crapshoot because they still deserve a lot of credit for taking the flyer on halliburton who is falling a little bit, who is going to be great for them for a long time. They've developed De'Aaron Fox really well. He's a great player. He's gotten his shot now, which changes his his upside significantly. I'm a De'Aaron Fox guy, but I don't know. It just feels like they are, they're in a weird holding pattern. And there's also just, I don't know. They kind of feel like they can be what the Blazers were a few years ago soon. I think they're close with uh, Barnes, Holmes, healed Halliburton Fox and Mitchell like I could see the scenario if Fox gets into that top 15 group and then a third team all NBA or Halliburton gets close and comes close to what McCollum is and then you have Buddy Heald as a sharpshooter in the corner you have Harrison Barnes being the stretch four um the the Roko type um I, I I could see it like I could see how if everything went the right way they could be some iteration of previous Blazers teams that we've watched for the last couple of years. Best case scenario for them. But I would say more of like a poor man where it's like a seven and eight seed perpetually version of that. Like it's just their rebuild has just been so weird. They have a new GM who is not tied to a lot of these guys. And McNair, you have a coach who I 
I was surprised kept his job. Like I'm surprised Luke Walton is still the head coach of the Sacramento Kings, especially with the the options available this offseason. But he's going to get at least one more year. I don't know. Like I, it it just feels like they still get an incomplete for me. It's just a very strange group that I. I am excited to watch on League Pass because I don't know how this rotation is going to shake out, and I think Luke Walton as first coach fired is is a good gamble at the moment. I'm with you. At, at first, I was like, okay, of course. At first, I was actually not surprised he wasn't fired because, like, in this case, it's probably you know in the team's best financial interest to keep him on than to to let him go and, and, and cycle through one again, even as bad as he has been. It's it was like. One of those moments where, okay, I, I think being Sacramento, just when everyone expects him to get rid of their coach, they're going to keep him. Um, but with that being said, next year, of course, it is not guaranteed. I would be right with with you on that wager there. Um, and I agree. It's going to be a weird, odd team to watch. And the lineups that, quite honestly, um, Walton would deploy, I struggle to think about because I'm not sure kind of what his plan is. You imagine that by drafting Davion Mitchell that you're going to more or less commit to a three-point guard lineup for at least significant portions of the game. Like, that seems to make sense. Otherwise, why would you bring him on? He's not really the heir apparent to your already young guard who is already content in Sacramento, who, by the way, has another point guard who can play alongside him, but also take over primary care of the ball when he sits. So it's not like we're kind of like building for the future in like a waiting game kind of way. No, the Kings have some weird reason to think they can all be played together, um, whether it's the front office with some of Walton's input or the front office independent of that. And yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how that all comes together. Um it's 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 Sacramento's going to be Sacramento. I think we're going to be looking at another uh, 10, 11 seed from them this upcoming year. But uh, it'll be intriguing to see, at least for me, if Mitchell will have the kind of breakout year that Tyrese Halliburton did in, in kind of a sneaky way. Yeah, we, we shall see. We shall see. Um, that's enough Kings. No more Kings. Can't do it. <laughs> but you know what's sad, too? Great bloggers, great writers. Kings are very well covered in the Sacramento area. And I would like to see those fans rewarded at some point. Um the Mavericks hired Jared Dudley away as an assistant coach. I'm surprised he went the coaching route and not the podcast slash NBA The Jump route because he seemed like someone who would be a shoe in for television or podcasting or whatever, but he is going the coaching route. What do you make of Dudley to Dallas? I think it's interesting. I think it's it's a relief probably that he saw the writing on the wall in terms of, hey, you know, the position that's available in Miami for Udonis Haslam is like a player coach isn't available for um, Dudley leaves for the Lakers and probably for any other team in the league. I mean, face it, Udonis Haslam is very fortunate in Miami to kind of be offered that same role. So to have the opportunity to be on the coaching staff, especially to say, you know, from the bench and have some primary duties in that in that, in that that area, um, I think it was a tremendous opportunity for him. I think it was something he couldn't hope help to pass up, um, that he had to absolutely jump on that because guess what? The media will still be there. You know, his personality is not going anywhere. If anything, um, his uh, body of work will be augmented from his time on the bench in Dallas. So he'll have a lot more to kind of pull from. I can see him definitely doing um, the Sam Van Gundy role where, you know, he kind of goes back and forth between coaching and front office gigs and, you know, media spots and, and, and reoccurring roles. I think that's somewhere where he'll have a, um, a future for sure. But this is a great opportunity for him. Um, you know, a, a loss of Lakers in terms of a locker room guy, but he's someone who is fresh from, you know, not only a championship team, but being uh, alongside a lot of great players. You look at the types of uh, guys he's been able to kind of rub elbows with from, you know, LeBron to Steve Nash and Devin Booker and Giannis and Bradley Beal, John Wall, all these guys that he has like um, a, a wealth of experience in terms of communication and, and knowing stars and, and maybe being able to reach Luka Doncic in a way that, you know, Jason Kidd and the coaching staff might not be able to. So, I like this for him. You know, I'm happy for him to get this opportunity. And I think that, 
you know, it'll only serve for more entertaining Dudley that we will see on the jump, and I'd say, like, maybe two years. We shall see. We shall see. <laughs> um, Jeremy Lamb, what do you think his trade value is like right now around the league? The Pacers are sniffing. They are. They called about Cam, Cam Reddish, that is, in Atlanta, and we'll talk more about him in a second, but um, seems like they are still doing some roster reallocation. Um what do you what do you make of Jeremy Lamb's trade value and where does he fit? Like he's someone who actually makes a lot of sense for the Lakers, but I don't think that's a possibility with where they're at cap wise. So who who makes sense for Jeremy Lamb based on what we and also just like what are people getting out of him after his season ending injury and what we've seen from him since his return? Um what do you what do you make of Lamb in his future in Indiana and where he should go? I mean, you're looking at someone in Lamb who, you know, coming off the injury, he did play 36 games. Um, he did shoot a career best from three. You know, you have someone who is definitely going to get points. Uh, that's kind of his main gig. It, it definitely isn't a, a pass in the rock with a career average of 1.6 assists. And mm-hmm. rebounding is also in short supply with him. But if you're looking for someone that kind of, you know, he's 29, um, he'll be 30, you know, middle of next year. In terms of someone who kind of knows his role, can fill it up. Um, play adequate defense, I'd say. I mean, he's had a couple seasons with just over a steal and plus uh, a game and just under a block for a couple of years. So you have someone who is, I would not say a, a stopper at all in the defensive end, but who will play adequately both ends of the floor with an eye um, toward the offensive side. As far as teams that are like would be interested in him, it's weird. I feel like a lot of teams that would like just shooting off the bench for you know a relatively cheap price would be interested in looking at him. I mean... The Lakers, where they are, probably not, but I wouldn't mind it if they were able to make it happen. I mean, only ones they have available to like move would possibly be Marcus Saul, but with rumors about him and the Lakers possibly being on the outs, it's not the worst thing to think about, although you would then have to look at the Lakers possibly have no address set, big manhole. So there's something there. Um, the Hornets apparently have had expressed interest, which is odd. Um, I mean, not only is he like, you know, a former Hornet, but also just in terms of them having a lot of guys who can kind of put the ball in the basket but not have like a mean guy and I don't think Lamb is that person. I think he's someone that slots in for kind of offense in a, in a, in a, in a pinch and someone who's a really good sharpshooter um, and someone who plays best with great playmakers. So maybe Golden State will be interested. Um, those are the teams I'm kind of looking at. Watch it be some other team that just surprisingly makes a deal. But you're looking at a team that like obviously wants to contend, has a uh, role that makes perfect sense for him, not expecting too much, but knowing exactly what you're going to get from him, and someone who um, can get him in positions that will make him look good. Maybe even in Denver, you know, where you have a good playmaker, you just need more offense around him, you slot him in, and you go from there. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it really just depends on what Jeremy wants to be at this point in his career and how many minutes he wants to be. Does he want to be a starter, key cog on a middling to bad team like a Detroit? Or does he want to be the ninth or 10th guy who comes in and out of the, like the Bobby Portis type for Milwaukee, that kind of thing where, well, we'll, we'll see. He's not a guarantee to get consistent rotation minutes on a contender, but if he gets hot or the, his ISO work is great and his slow-mo ball offensively is working, then they, they ride that hot hand in the playoffs. I, I like Jeremy Lamb. He's great. He's evolved into a really great shooter. He's long. Um, I don't know. I, I think there are some interesting teams like Cleveland really does make a lot of sense for this because Cleveland by all accounts is exploring um, adding a veteran wing because when you look at this group Cleveland's another incomplete where it's like this team's going to die 
in a lot of different ro- like i cannot wait to look at their plus minus groups and like, i don't know if you're <laughs> like this but looking at three-man units five-man units yeah. um we haven't been able to see cleveland with their their five-man unit that colby altman really wants to run which is garland sexton okoro now like it was love last year and jared allen but instead we'll get it with mobley allen sexton okoro and garland um we all as basketball fans just want to see that we want to see what extended time with those five looks like in insert love either way um that being said there is not a lot there like chetty osman you have lamar stevens you have dylan windler like not a lot of not a lot of wing help there you added ricky rubio um, and he should be really good for Garland, getting him picking uh, just uh, shots uh, off the catch and shoot, which I think will be important for him. And that just seems to be more of his bread and butter than creating for himself. Um, Colin Sexton still kind of the elephant in the room. And if you, he just seems like if you want to get wing help who can shoot and do stuff, then Sexton's the one you have to move because I don't really know who else fits. You throw Larry Nance out there, but I'm like, I think you kind of need Larry Nance because you really don't know with love. You just pay Jared Allen, but like Mobley's not ready yet, and you Larry Nance would be a nice person to have to help um, to help Mobley along. So I don't know. I would probably, unless the offer really blows me away, because I think Nance's trade value's got got to be pretty low. But Lamb makes a lot of sense there and would help. And I'm also very curious to see who Cleveland has in mind on the wing. That is true. I'm think I'm more interested in that second part as well. Uh, it'd be interesting to see Lamb there as far as like someone who I mean, obviously it's not long long term future for them, but yeah, it would fill a, a desperate need they have, and that does lead to a question in terms of how exactly are they going to fill that hole for 48 minutes a night? You have guys who could fill that for a couple spots here and there, but I definitely wouldn't say you have like a complete game with adequate you know forward play uh, specifically at that three spot if you're Cleveland. That that is very interesting for sure. So what do you think Cleveland does? Do you think they move Nance or Sexton this offseason? If you're Colby Altman, what do you do? What do you do to solve this this issue and walk this fine line that so many rebuilding teams have to do, which is we draft all these young guys, but we also need to have the right veterans. And like, when do we, when do we, when do we pounce? When do we do what Atlanta did last year? When do we add the Bogdanoviches? When do we add the Gallinari's? When do we add insert veteran here who helps us go from bottom feeder to play into whatever with our stars and make our stars jobs easier i'm so curious about this because cleveland's they they really like this front office i think needs to win now i think jb bickerstaff needs to start winning some games like i think there's a lot of pressure um in cleveland going into what they're going to be this year um mobley we'll see but like you paid Jared Allen. He's going to be a really, really good rim running center for you this year. You've got something in Garland. You've got something in Okoro, especially defensively. You should get Love back. Um, you should get Larry Nance back. You're going to have a lot of veterans getting some minutes, so you should be, by all accounts, better. Ricky Rubio, too, getting rotation minutes. Like, It's a nice mixture now, but who is who do you have your eye on if you're Cleveland? If you're Altman, what do you do? I think if you get, like an, over, if you get an overwhelming package for like a – um, for Larry Nance Jr., then you take that. Uh, it seems that the Cavs have been really high on him, so I don't see that as something that's likely, but is it's possible. You know, I think if something comes up that you just can't pass up, the Altman will be smart and make that move. I think it's more likely that you see Sexton shopped. Um, 
just because you've already heard there's been way too much rumors and way too much noise beyond behind um him kind of re-extending re- with the Cavs for it not to be something there I think that if there was a move in terms of starting to retain him we'd have heard more of that in that direction we've heard everything but um so I look at maybe them keeping him through the season or through the first half and maybe showcasing him a little bit um, and then maybe seeing if they could get a good return for him. Maybe someone to kind of bounce him out. I think they look at themselves as a team that, you know, uh, mid-season, you kind of know where you are with the group that you have. Maybe they reassess and say, hey, you know, play and it's still within reach for us. You know, let's make a let's make a decent move there. Maybe that involves keeping Sexton and rethinking your priorities on the fly. You know, look at how John Collins was with the Hawks before the season and how he ended it, you know, with them. So maybe it looks at, maybe it takes the first half of the year for them to kind of come to grips with what team they're going to be. Maybe they realize after the first half of the year, okay, nope, we're right back where we were. You know, let's try to really start making that move now. Move a guy that we're not going to keep in Sexton. See if we can get some guy back or a collection of guys back. Um, that can help us to rebuild for 2022-2023. If you're Memphis, who are you more comfortable moving this offseason, Anderson or Brooks? Ooh. Um, Anderson is such a good glue guy for them. I think he's been a stabilizing force for them. Uh, however, he is, I think, just on the state of being older as someone who um, – it's well, that's a tough one. I'm going to say I'm going to say you keep Dylan Brooks. Think Dylan Brooks, you have some dog defense – I think you have an identity with with this team. You have that kind of um, rapport already with them. You have someone who's going to be at least a semi-consistent offensive threat as well. He's come through in, in, in much bigger ways, I think, where maybe you could find another Kyle Anderson um, or type of player in that way than a Dylan Brooks who's also on the younger side. That's a tough one, though. I, I like it, but I think moving forward, you'd probably pick Brooks. Interesting. I would go the other way. The really? Brooks freestyling and his play, like it. I think it it adds more to John Morant's plate as a playmaker. But I think that's what you want. I think you need to keep adding to to his plate as he develops more and more as the guy in Memphis. Uh, Memphis has got some interesting questions uh, this offseason and what they're going to be because their their front court getting a little little crowded with Adams, Tillman, Jackson, Clarks, Hernan Gomez. Um, you bring in Jarrett Culver as a flyer from a former lottery guy. I like D'Anthony Melton a lot. Um, we'll we'll see. But like Brooks, it, 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 as someone who watched a lot of Memphis, like I can understand. Like it seems like no Memphis fan enjoys the Dylan Brooks experience, but everyone kind of enjoys the Kyle Anderson experience and what he does defensively and him just knowing his role. And Dylan Brooks is more of a more of a gunner. And I think you can find a lot more Dylan Brooks types than Kyle Anderson types. And I also think you could slide Desmond Bain into that two spot, um, at least for a little bit. And you could see what you can get. Like, honestly, what if you just slid Bain into that two spot, at least from the start, and then you you included Colin Sexton in that deal? Colin Sexton is the, the new third guard in Memphis. What, what would you think about that? And then you send Dylan Brooks to Cleveland to give Cleveland some more more shooting, better offense, get a little bit older. Um, I think he's a better player than Colin Sexton anyway. And I think, I don't know if, I, I'm, I'm pretty out on Colin Sexton and what he's going to be in the NBA, but I do think he has value if he transitions his mindset from lead guard, playmaker, superstar potential to, I just need to be a third guard who runs second units and just pounds people with my athleticism and uh, my just getting to the rim and that sort of thing. But I, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I'm with you in that. I guess looking at, I don't know, it's weird because I'm not high on, okay, if we're looking comparing Kyle Anderson and um, 
Brooks, just to go back to that, I'm not specifically high on either of them, I guess, but, like, I look at Anderson, and I'm like, okay, if you're you're trying to, you have someone who in Anderson can do a little bit of playmaking, but, like, specifically when it comes to, like, play finishing, specifically the playoffs, like, who are you looking at as, like, a, a consistent offensive threat if you're Memphis against Utah? Outside of John Morant, I would say the closest was Dylan Brooks, right? Like, yeah, he's a gunner, but I wouldn't say him just, like, I don't know, like, like, I I don't want to I don't want to use gunner disparity. You don't like you wouldn't consider like, uh-huh. Dylan Brooks a gunner. Dylan Brooks is absolutely a gunner. I absolutely would, but I feel like mm-hmm. in a proper role where you had like who's Memphis's guy that does that? They have well, that's what I'm saying. So if you remove shots. him, it adds more to Jaw's plate. It adds more to Jaron Jackson's plate, and I think that needs to happen so that you can see what you have if they are the lead creator on this offense. I think that's just something you need to do. Like Trey had to start the other way in Atlanta where he was the primary guy and his usage was 35 and he was putting up just ridiculous usage stats and was having to do everything and the team was dying when he wasn't on the floor. Um, I think the opposite has been true in Memphis where the training wheels have been more readily available for jaw. And I think if he's going to be a superstar in this league, especially in the West, with the amount of guard talent, uh, young guard talent, especially with Jamal Murray, with Damian Lillard, with um, Jamal, or with, uh, De- wow, um, there's a lot of Mitchells now in the West. <laughs> yeah. um, the Donovan Mitchell, excuse me. Um, he has to become a 30-plus usage guy who hits his shot from deep consistently, gets fouled consistently. Like, he needs to have a higher usage, and he needs to be the main guy like he needs to like it just it feels like dylan brooks still is like i can handle this late in game sometimes and i just i don't i don't think that's healthy because he you you would rather have somebody who knows their role more and an anderson uh like an anderson or a desmond bain okay i guess i'm just lower on anderson i think he's like a very good role player i just think he's like limited like when you say okay we're gonna open it up for john Morant to do more yeah he definitely are because like Kyle Anderson is not bringing anything more than what he is which is a mm-hmm. very good like 13 6 and 5 you know type of player that's, that's really solid but i don't know i guess i saw more upside in brooks in like a proper role but i see what you mean and i've seen it as well like you're right like who's to say that you get that guy and then brooks is like yeah you know, I'm, I'm going to find my space now. I've just been, like, taking up this shot spot because no one else has done it. He might still think he is that guy. That, that That's true. Who would you guess is number two in usage this past year in Memphis? Well, it would be Brooks if it's not Moran, right? It is Brooks. He is in the 90, He was in the 91st percentile in usage last year oh, wow. in the NBA. Jeez. Okay, I was not a – whoa. All right. Brooks likes the ball, man. He loves the ball. <laughs> Like that man loves the ball, and I just I don't know if that's the natural long term fit for Jaws development. That's my broader point. So, Not we with you, I agree. we shall see. Um, Stan Van Gundy back to TNT, back to television. Uh, this is where he probably should have been all along. Uh, he's actually very good on broadcast, and uh, I'm excited to have him back. What about you? I'm with you. I actually like the perspective he gives. I think he has a little bit of humor. You know, I think um, he definitely gives a, a more balanced take uh, than his brother, who I also enjoy uh, on TV, but just can get a little more ranty at times. I think that seeing his NBA forays that, you know, he's had a lot more success on TV. Maybe this is where he should reside. He's just not as grouchy as his brother. Yeah. No, he's not. He's grouchy and on I, Twitter. <laughs> yes, he He's is. grouchy on Twitter. Good, good, good cause, but he is grouchy on Twitter. I, I do <laughs> think he is just someone where baseball has this problem far more than basketball i think but it's still prevalent in basketball a little bit um of people who are on the older side who 
do not like how the game is played anymore, so they just complain about it in national broadcast, and you wonder why. Um, yeah, I thought they, you liked the game. <laughs> yeah, like, why are you doing this if you don't like what you're watching? And that's kind of what you get the the feel from from Jeff sometimes. And um, I don't know. You, you kind of – you don't want that. Um, but Jeff is the, the least of my concerns on that broadcast. But there is another person that should have been uh, replaced a long time ago. Um, <laughs> but we'll, we'll see. Uh, that – is all I've got right now, uh, Corbett. What uh, what can we check out from you this week across the internet, across the audio formats? Uh, what uh, what can the good folks look out for you? Oh, I mean, I've had it's been a crazy busy week. Um, I was fortunate to be on a one of a PD Web Summer League streams, uh, so that's dropped on YouTube or on his um, Twitter account. Just going over the game of Josh Christopher, uh, my own show, Round Ball Ramble. We've had um, a bunch of guests. I'm starting. I've been continuing my off season uh, review series. So we did the Lakers. Um, the Mavericks, uh, with more teams coming up here. Uh, so that's something as well. And then I also had the privilege of being on both the Upside Swings podcast um, as well as uh, the Gen Z Rockets podcast, really talking about, you know, Summer League, what we liked, what we didn't like from that, and, of course, some other ramblings about players I'm all big on. So I'm a big shot-happy wing player. Maybe that's why I like Dylan Brooks so much. So I have to incorporate that into most conversations I have. That's what's kind of that's the kind of uh, pickup player you are? Yeah. So yes and no. Okay. Um, I like to think I'm more cerebral. Like if I see, especially if I see a team that has that guy, then I'm more than fine spying up at the corner. It's just one of those things where I like to watch it. Like I, I, I like the, the flaws in the ba- in that basketball player's performance. So like, you know, everyone's all about like the beautiful game. I love that too. Chris ball movement, you know, nice pass. Like those are great, but I like the guy who's going to say, you know what? No, we are just chucking it up. Like, this is how it's going to go down. Every once in a while, I think that that chaos is, is fun. I think it's part of the game that isn't glorified, nor should it be, but also something I like to savor. So um, in its moments, I, I'm, I'm a fan of that. Usually that involves watching bad teams, but I'm also up to the challenge there. I uh, I am the worst kind of person with the way I play pickup. But it's also the way I, I played AAU growing up in to stay okay. on the floor, which is I press. Like, I will get up in you. I will use my cardio and i will use my my attempts to get inside dish threes that kind of thing but like defense i i will hound you and i will use my cardio to to make it a very uh very uncomfortable situation uh, oh, wow. to, yeah so i will find dudes and i i definitely talk trash and i'm definitely in your ear and uh yeah it uh it, it it's annoyed some people i've i've got it uh it, it's always a fun time i'll say when you play pickup with me, it uh, it's fun. Okay, we got we got a some way we got to link that up. See how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> you might you might swing, it, but it, <laughs> all. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> all right, man. Well, thank you so much for making the time. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, we can find you on Twitter at Corbin NBA. Um, don't be a stranger, man. This was good. I appreciate, it, man. Thank you for having me on, and I'm, I'm happy. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.